Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Mino Lion Media presents Conversations with Dr. Ian Smith. If you've listened to any R&B hit over the last 30 years, it is no doubt you have heard the work of my next guest. They are absolutely legends when it comes to R&B and music in general. From Janet Jackson all the way to Prince, they have worked with the biggest and the brightest and the most accomplished. Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, thank you for joining the conversation tonight. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Well, I got to tell you, this is, um, you know, in my line of work, I get a chance to meet all types of people. Uh, But it's particularly special when you meet people who you have admired and who have entertained you. And I mean, I, you know, I just don't know. You guys are just so unbelievable in so many ways. Before we get to all of that uh, and anyone, you know, it's so funny, my publicist, when she heard I was going to interview you, she said, uh, who is that? <laughs> and I said to her, I said, I said, if you've ever heard an R&B song, <laughs> that's who it is. I said, these guys are the biggest songwriters and producers in the history of R&B, hands down. And she was like, oh, my goodness, are you serious? And I started naming the artist. She's like, oh. so. Um, so anyway, before we get there, and I know I don't have a lot of time with you guys, but. I want to start off with just a question that I've always wondered. Jimmy, Jimmy Jam, is the Jam for nickname because of you jamming or is that? Yeah, uh, Jam was actually given to me. Um, I used to DJ. And uh, when I was working as a DJ, there was a bartender at the club I worked at. And when I first started working, uh, my name is Jimmy Harris. So he said when people would ask him who the DJ was, he'd say, oh, that's Jimmy Jam. And so people started calling me Jimmy Jam because he said, you got to have a DJ name. So Jimmy Jam was my DJ name. And then when we did the Time album uh, 40 years ago this year, uh, the very first Time album, I remember asking Prince what my name should be in the credits. And he said, Jimmy Jam. And I said, "Okay." So once that happened, that was it. And it's been Jimmy Jam ever since. So yeah, and just so you know that he's a jamming Jimmy for real. Like he was like he was like the DJ cat in Minneapolis. Um and when he plays keyboards, he is definitely the jam. <laughs> well, Terry, I was gonna say to you, I'm glad you mentioned that Minneapolis. So you guys met when you were young in Minneapolis, but you didn't meet in school, you met at a in a program, right? Upward and, bound. Upward bound, that's right, upward bound. And so you guys are just in this group together. Did you have any kind of musical inclination at the time? Did you know you both like music? I mean, how did this go down? Well, kind of the meeting was, um, I guess, I guess there's no um, things left to, to chance anymore. But our, our meeting was based on when I first saw Jimmy playing keyboards, he was in like the lunchroom with a bunch of girls around him. <laughs> and I said, oh, this, this, this guy's the coolest guy. Like, I want to get to meet this guy, get to know him. And... Um, So eventually I introduced myself, but the first time that he saw me, I was sitting in my dorm room because we stayed in dorms all summer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we were just teenagers, you know, in middle school. And um, he saw me, I was playing my bass. I had like a red, black and green bass. I was sitting on my bed playing cool in the gang parts. And he saw me do that. And he felt the same. So it was destined that we get together and actually take a stab at music. So at the end of this process of this summer school, you know, I, I was an athlete, like a pretty much a full time athlete. So all my friends were athletes and they also a lot of them start dabbling in the music. So I started dabbling in the music. And um, at the end of the summer session, we wanted to put together a little band. Mm-hmm. So I had a drummer and a sax player, but I needed a keyboard player. So I immediately thought of Jam. Now, Jam was a drummer at the time because he used to drum for his father's band. So um I said, yeah, but you play keyboards. Your dad plays keyboards. You should be able to play keyboards. So I, I convinced him to come on and we wouldn't, you know, confiscated his dad's keyboard and came back and we started 
you know, playing around with these songs. And I know we were probably ho- horrible, but be- because we did no vocals, we just did instrumentals. But like, what what, what we play like Tuesday Heartbreak, um, uh, Soul we played uh, Soul Vaccination, and you know, a bunch of just different songs. I I can only imagine how that stuff sounds. Well, well, but Jimmy, your dad was a famous blues musician. And his name, by the way, I write fiction, by the way, I write novels. And um, I'm telling you right now, I'm going to use your dad's name because Cornbread Harris is absolutely a great character name. It just it says so much. You can just see the person when you say that's Cornbread Harris. So uh, you come. (laughs) I just love it. You come from a line of musicians. So you got it, honestly, right? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in a house with um, where my dad was a musician, as you say. Actually, I should say is a musician. He's 93. He's still performing. He's still out there performing. So, uh, But yeah, I grew up with nothing but keyboards around the house, but I was always banging on stuff. So my parents got me a drum set. So that's how I started playing the drums. And then, you know, between that and my mom basically taking over the record player uh, and hearing just great records and great music. I mean, it was definitely a musical household. And uh, as Terry said, when I, when Terry and I first met, I was actually playing drums for my dad in his band. And I think I was like 12, 13 years old at that point in time. So um, yeah. And, and it's funny because you ask about when, when Terry and I met and I felt it was like love at first sight when I saw Terry, because Terry was a couple of years older than me. And I remember we had, we were staying in dorms at the university of Minnesota, but it was still a summer school program. We were just in junior high school. But I remember the door of the door, the dorm was open. Terry's sitting on his bed with a red, black and green bass. And he's playing every cool in the gang bass part. And I just looked at this dude and I just said, "Okay, I got to get to know this brother. So we basically music was really the thing that we fell in love over and really built our whole foundation around our love of music. You know, you know, people when people interview me and I get all these interviews for my books or whatever, and they'll say, if you weren't doing what you were doing, Dr. Ian, what would you do? And I got to tell you, I think being a musician, I love music so much. I mean, it is absolutely in my bones. And I'll never forget, I was watching Kevin Eubanks when he was on The Tonight Show and he was sitting on the couch with Jay Leno and he was talking about good music. And he said that he grew up listening to all types of music, that good music is just not in a genre. Good music is all genres. You can find good country, good rock, good hip hop, that he was a lover of good music. And I was like, my goodness, that's me. Because I grew up listening to everyone from Cyndi Lauper to Janet Jackson to Luther Vandross to Pat Benatar, right? And so, you know, because I love good music. And when I think about you guys, I just say, holy cow, like, think about Shakespeare writing all that stuff. Think about Mozart. You guys have touched the biggest, the most celebrated songs in our history. I mean, you know, two days ago, I'm in the gym listening to the SOS play. Had no idea, Just Be Good to Me. Had no idea you had anything to do with that. It was one of my favorite songs when I was in high school. And I just doing the research and you got, I mean, what haven't you guys done? Honestly, this is ridiculous. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting <laughs> because one of the things you mentioned is part of our growing up. Terry and I grew up uh, well, eventually in Minneapolis, but I grew up listening to pop radio. So for me, it was Seals and Crofts. It was America. It was the Carpenters. It was Chicago, that type of thing. Terry, it was P-Funk. And, and he was the one that introduced me to Tower of Power and Earth, Wind and Fire. So when we got together, we had very, very much a wide range of what you would call good music taste, really across all the genres of music. And even as young band members, when we put bands together, we would go into clubs and a lot of times you'd have to play according to what you were playing. You know, we weren't playing a lot of times our own music, but you'd have to play certain kind of music for a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah. Or if you're at the ski lodge, you're playing at something else. Or if you're at the jazz club, you're playing something else. So we had to play polkas. We had to play top 40. We had to play everything. And that was really our education, at, I think, in our early years. So we had the appreciation of music, but also in learning to play those hit songs, it taught us how to write hit songs, I think. So, yeah, I mean, and, and that goes, I think that when someone is mastering and developing their craft, you also have to be a consumer 
of what you're creating, right? You have to be a good consumer of what you can't write good mysteries if you don't consume crime fiction. You have to you have to know it. You have to understand the language, the beats. And, the, and for you guys, you can tell, by the way, I mean, listen, Janet Jackson, Cheryl Lynn, Alexander O'Neill, Lionel Richie, Yolanda Adams, Patti LaBelle. I mean, honestly, I don't know who you haven't worked with. And I say that seriously, like the list was so long when I was looking at it. Um, but but you guys have such an eclectic arsenal of songs, uh, but it has to come from your eclectic uh, enjoyment of music, right, Terry, of all the different types of things you like. You just don't like one thing. It's just so eclectic. The array is so so vast. Yeah, we were blessed to grow up in the environment that all those things were at our fingertips and the those are the things that we were influenced by. They, it's always in your ear. Pop music was in my ear. Rock music was in my ear. Actually, R&B was probably the least amount of the music that was in my ear. But when I found it, I gravitated to it because it felt natural. And um, I think probably the same thing for jam is, you know, and, and we kind of cross uh, swapped everything. It was like he'd be listening to Seals and Crofts and whatever in <laughs> Chicago, and he'd be letting me hear that, and, you know, and. I'd hear all those things on the radio, but I wouldn't pay as much attention to it after after we found James Brown and, <laughs> you know, Mother's Finest and, you know, Parliament and Funkadelic. And um, who's another one? Uh, 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 well, Sly, Sly and the Family Stone. Sly, for sure. Absolutely. Sly made me want to be in the band when I when I saw that. And, you know, it's such a, an eclectic group of people. Yeah. You know, uh, it just that's kind of where we grew up. We grew up in a very eclectic place in terms of because it was only like maybe three to five percent black. Mm. So like your friends were not just black people. They were like everybody. You know, you know, it's amazing you say that because when I'm with my kids or with my other friends, uh, my black friends and Journey will come on or the police will come on or Phil Collins. And I know every single lyric because (laughs) I grew up listening you know, I went to a predominantly all white school and that was the music that was always playing. And I listened to it and I didn't like the hard rock stuff like the ACDC and uh, Zeppelin. That wasn't my thing. But you know, like I said to you, Pat Benatar, Journey, The Police, um, you know, all, George Michael, uh, Boy George. I love Boy George. And, and, and people say to me, Dr. Ian, you listen. It's good music, guys. It's good music. Great music. Yeah. So what I want to ask you guys is when you're putting something together and you're working with all these great artists, like what's your inspiration? How do you how do you get there from a creative standpoint? Well, the artists are always the inspiration for us. We only work with people who inspire us. It's as simple as that. Our thing is um, there's a lot of artists that we really like, but if they don't inspire a song idea or we don't feel like, oh, we're the right people to do that, then we stay away from it. We've chosen, you know, pretty good over the years, things that really inspire us, you know, and I, and I think that's really the key to it. We, we think of ourselves like tailors, meaning that if you, um, you know, you could go buy a suit from off the rack and it's going to be a nice suit. It's going to fit you just fine. Or you can go in and pick your fabric, pick the color, pick the what kind of you want, double breasted, single breasted. You want, um, you know, four button, three button, you know, all of those different things. And now you have a suit that fits you perfectly. Mm. The thing that remains in common, though, is the way that maybe we sew the thread. So the threads are going to be the same. And somebody could look at the suit and go, oh, yeah, that's a Jam and Lewis suit. But the sounds (laughs) and everything else that we put around it to give everybody their own custom identity, so to speak, that's what we've Mm. always tried to do. So if you're working with a bunch of female artists and you have Sherelle, but then you have Mary J. Blige, but then you have Mariah Carey, then you have Tony Braxton and you have Janet Jackson, they should all sound different. They should all have their own sound. And that's the way we always tried to look at it. And those artists obviously inspired us to do music. And, you know, as Terry likes to say, there's really three kinds of music. There's good music and there's bad music. And then there's hits. Mm. So you can argue about the first two, what's good and bad. A hit is a hit, right? So that's the way we look at it. So Terry, so speaking of hits, how does it feel to be such a hit maker? Do you ever just feel like, well, you're so used to it. It's just kind of 
blase or do you still get excited? I mean, you guys are absolute hit makers. Well, Dr. Ian, let me tell you, brother, I would love to claim genius, but everybody makes hits. We make music. Other people make it hits like that's, you know, it takes us to create the music. It takes the artist to do a great performance and all those things. But once it leaves our hands, it goes to radio. Radio has to play it or it goes to the Internet. And then people have to listen, consume it, accept it, love it, and then want to just continue to do that over and over and over, which dictates it being a hit. So we don't necessarily make hits. We just try to make great music. And I think the biggest foundation of that is we just try to create, as fans of the artists and fans of music, we try to create music that we love. And we just hope everybody else agrees. So, Terry, so then I'm glad you said that. So take me through the process. So how does it typically work? Do you guys have an idea for a song for an artist or does an artist come to you and say, hey, I want to work with you guys. What do you got? Or this is what I'm thinking. What can you do with it? What's the process like? There are so many different ways this can work, but mm-hmm. I'll give you the breakdown of a, a simple way it can mm-hmm. work. First of all, we get with an artist and we consult with the artist. But before we consult with the artist, if that artist is, uh, has some history, we're probably fans of that artist. So we go back and we figure out what we like before mm-hmm. or that we like currently with that artist. And then we look at that and we try to figure out what else we can bring to that particular artist. Then we sit with the artist and try to find out what the artist's vision is for where they're going and how they feel about where they are. Mm-hmm. And then we try to, like Jam says, tailor a suit or a song or a suite of songs that fulfills all those things. So, it, I mean, it could be any configuration. The artist can bring ideas. We can just have ideas. But it's all based on that particular artist. It's, it's never something that we preconceive just out of the box unless we have like a, a notion of what that artist has done or needs to do based on history. We just don't do it in a vacuum. Is there any artist that you guys have said, geez, I wish we had worked with that person? Hmm. Because you've worked with almost everybody. Is there anyone who you said, wish we had? There's there's one that that we got real close to working with and that, that I say that about now, only because she's no longer available for us to work with. And that's Whitney Houston. Mm. I, I just think we could have done some things, especially in the later years, not when she was making the big hits, mm-hmm. but when, you know, after she kind of had gone away for a while and she wasn't making records, that was be the time that I would love to work with someone like her, just because I think she would be able to tell her story mm. in such a unique way. That would have been a great challenge to to try to undertake. Jimmy, he said you guys were close. What does that mean? Well, we conceptually talked about what our idea was for Whitney, and it was when she was coming out of um, sort of a hiatus, I guess I would say, and she was going to come back. And I think the plan, if I remember correctly, at that point in time was she was going to go and do Oprah and she was going to do a whole lot of things and kind of tell her story. Our idea was, if you're going to tell your story, let's do it in a musical way because you're a singer. Mm -hmm. So our thing was very simple. Let's sit down and kind of like we did with Janet, let's sit down and just have some conversations and just hang out. And then even though she wasn't a writer in the sense of she never thought of herself as I'm going to sit down and write a song. So we thought if we can just sit with her, she'll just tell us what it is that she's feeling, tell us some stories. We'll just get to know each other. And then we can put that into a song, you know, where now the words that she's saying, she can sing. Because I mm. think that people who have that ability to sing, I remember I gave long, not a long time ago, but a while back, I gave, not that he listened to me, but I gave Kanye what I thought was some advice. And mm. my advice was something that we kind of learned from Prince. Prince re- never really did a whole lot of interviews, but anything you ever wanted to know about him and the way he was feeling was all in his music. And mm. I remember saying to Kanye that, you know, a lot of times to me, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. So some of the things that you think are controversial in conversation in a song with a beat and a melody, all of a sudden makes it more, you ex- at least you accept it. You may not agree with it, but it makes it at least accepting to people. More so that's kind of what we wanted to do with Whitney. We thought rather mm-hmm. than go on Oprah and tell your story, let's make your album the story. 
and those songs, much like Janet did with Control, um, New Edition did with the Heartbreak album, so on and so forth. We had done that before with artists, and we just thought it's an effective way to go about doing it. And we just we were close to, to it happening, but it just never came around. Never materialized. No. Can I just say this? Rhythm Nation, you guys are ridiculous. Rhythm Nation is unbelievable. I mean, just one of the greatest albums. Of, I don't care what anyone says. Rhythm Nation is just, it's sick. It's just, it, we were just talking about this the other day with my friend from college. Listen, when you take an album in every single song you can rock out to, um, I'm thinking of Jill Scott's, that, that big Jill Scott album. Every song on that album is one of those, like, like it's just, everything's a rock. Everything, Rhythm Nation, you guys just lost yourself. It was just, uh, uh, it was, speaking of control, it was out of control. Uh, I just had to say that. But, um, you know, Terry, let me ask you this. You guys work with these artists. What is the life for the people uh, who are listening? Kind of give us a little insight about the life of working with these huge names that have entourages and the bureaucracy. I mean, how is it actually working with these people who we hear on the radio all the time? To be honest with you, I don't I don't think of them as huge artists like that, because once again, I am a fan of them as artists singers, whatever, but I'm more a fan of their humanity. Hmm. So a lot of, well, matter of fact, all of them, I, I consider my friends. So I never think about it like that, but it's, it's very easy because we are the safe place for them. Yep. When they come to work with us, they can say whatever, they can think whatever without judgment. Mm-hmm. And all we want to do is process it and make it into something powerfully good mm. is mm. never a negative thing about it. It's, you know, cause we're not here to pass judgment. Even if we disagree with something, we can always find some good in it. Mm. Mm. So, um, you know, we never have a problem working with artists like at all, but also I'm sure they respect, I mean, you know, they respect you guys. You are, you are masters of your craft. So it's not like you, in my opinion, to be honest with you, you're just as big a celebrity as they are because because you guys are the creators. You guys, I know you say you're not hit makers. Okay, I get that concept, but 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 you guys have the goods and you produce the goods. I mean, let's, we just have to be honest with you. And, you know, like my friend always says, game respects game. And, uh, yeah. you know, right? Well, well I'll, I'll put it this way. There, there's different ways to look at it, too. You know, good writers read, as you've already said. Yep. You know, in order to be a good writer, you have to read, at least in the genre that you respect and care to write in. We love music. In order to be good musicians, good songwriters, and good producers, we have to be students of the history of how that all happened. So that allows us to pull from the past to bring it into the present. And then, you know, we dictate our future by that. So, yeah, it's it, there's a lot of different phases to this, but it's all based on history, all of the study, all the things that we've learned, even when we were fledgling musicians. Like, and it's not necessary to know a lot, but the the key thing to know in all of this, especially production, is certainly what to do, but more importantly, what not to do. Mm. Mm. And what you don't want to do is defy someone's trust. It's Mm. all about trust. Mm. We want to do the best job for that artist and forget what we think or what we feel, because that's not necessarily fact. Fact is what the artist feels. And that's we we base our principles on that. Yeah. And I was and I was going to say to the two things come to mind when you say that is Terry is one is as far as entourages, the funniest one that I remember was the first time we worked with Mariah and she came to Minneapolis and she flew in on a private jet at about two in the morning, probably, and comes to the studio. And it was just like you would imagine Mariah would show up with a <laughs> she had hair makeup assistants uh background singers like it was like an entourage of people and the coolest thing was she kind of left everybody out in the kind of in the lobby area and then we had a little behind our studio at that at that location we had like this little conference room i guess you'd call it little lounge and we go into the lounge and it's just the three of us in there and Mariah was able to articulate in a way that most artists can't why she wanted to work with us. And mm-hmm. a lot of times artists will come up and they say, they'll say something like, oh, I love all your songs. 
and we'll go, okay, well, like, which ones are, which, we don't even <laughs> like all our songs, so which one do you really like or whatever? Mariah literally sang every Sherelle record, every SOS band record, every Alexander O'Neill record. Like, she oh, dug goodness. deep, and she said, I like this, I like this, I want to do a song like this. And she was so, you know, on top of it, I guess in a way, way beyond most artists. And and we, we loved that immediately from the start with her. And um, so that was that was one thing I wanted to say was just how focused. But when you talk about having the big entourage, she was the one that had that, but yet and still was the most focused out of anybody mm. we worked with. But I remember probably a week later, we worked with Vanessa Williams and Vanessa mm. Williams came up all by herself. Nobody with her. She came up, she sang her song or her two songs that we did and then hopped on a plane and went back because she wanted to be back in time to tuck her son into bed or her daughter into bed, whatever it was at that point in time. And I just thought, man, so I mean, and, and, and everything wow. in between. And, and I yeah. just want to say that what Terry's saying, when people think about music production, the thing that they always think about is the technicality of it. You know, how do you get this sound? How do you, you know, those types of things. To me, the most important part about it, and when Terry says safe space, the studio is a safe space, these artists need to open up to you and they need to trust you. But we become psychiatrists, um, psychologists, we're the people that the artist has to open totally up to and totally trust in order to get, I mean, it's really the most intimate relationship you, you can have to me, um, besides obviously well, with your significant other. And that's well, what we've been able to, I think, make people feel comfortable enough and trust us enough to really go for it. And that's why the performances are great and all those things turn out really good. And, and it's just the trust factor that I think the artists have with us. Well, we've said Minneapolis several times and, um, you know, the white elephant is Prince, obviously. For my money, one of the greatest musical geniuses in history and someone who I absolutely, even when I was in high school, by the way, he, he was the guy who I just had all of his stuff. Uh, when Doves Cry, the whole thing was just, I was a Prince fan way, way, way back then. You guys actually worked with him, got fired. I heard a funny story. You got fired by him because you were doing something for someone else and didn't make it back. Talk a little about your experiences with Prince. Well, the well, no, I I can tell you the, the the quick story on it. So we had gone down. Prince had told us not to produce any other acts outside of the time because Terry and I had started doing that, and he told us don't do it. So, but we went down to Atlanta to produce the SOS band. Actually, the song you mentioned uh, earlier, "Just Be Good to Me." And when we went down to Atlanta, we basically had four days off on our tour that we were on. And so we thought, well, we'll go down to Atlanta for a couple of days and then we'll fly into the next show, which was going to be in San Antonio, Texas. Mm -hmm. So as we were leaving Atlanta after going and doing those songs, there was a snowstorm. But we're coming from Minneapolis. What was happening was not a snowstorm. It was what we called a dusting of snow, right? You just go and sweep it off and whatever. Anyway, shut the whole airport down. We missed the next time gig, right? So... We got fined. He fined us. And we thought it was kind of over and done with, except that then a picture showed up in Billboard magazine of us with the SOS band. So we knew we were caught at that point. We're going to get in some trouble. So the same night we had, we were going to mix the SOS band song uh, in Los Angeles. Prince called and said, come to the studio. And we thought, oh, okay. So we're going to work, I guess, on the next time album. Great. When we go to the studio to work, thinking we're going to work on the next time album, it's Prince, Morris, Jesse, myself and Terry. And Prince just says, I heard you guys were working with the SOS band and I told you not to produce any other acts. So you're fired. And I was like, okay. So I got up and left the room. I mean, it was nothing, there was nothing else to say at that point. And so I walked out the room, Terry, Terry battled for a little while. And then he came out and we kind of looked at each other and we said, oh, well, what do you want to do? We said, well, might as well go over to this other studio and mix the SOS band record since we already had time to do that. So when we walked into the other studio, the engineer was a guy named Steve Hodge. And Steve Hodge, we knew his name because he worked on all the Solar records. When was, if you remember, Solar records was uh, Whisper, Shalimar, Lakeside. Mm -hmm. He had mixed mm -hmm. every one of those records. So we thought, mm -hmm. that's the guy we want to mix our record. And we had never met him. We had just talked to him on the phone. So we walk into the studio and he said, oh, hey, guys, nice to meet you. We say, hey, nice to meet you, Steve. He said, what's wrong with you guys? And we said, oh, we just got fired from the time. And he said, oh, you got fired from the time? And we said, yeah. And he said, well, I wouldn't worry about it because this record you guys got here, this is a smash. And he presses play and Just Be Good To Me comes on with the Steve Hodge mix on it. And we were like, whoa. So it was very much a Hollywood, um, 
you know, God's plan or whatever, however you want to put it, that was definitely that moment. And as it turned out, we weren't really fired. It was just a bluff. And uh, later on, we were backstage, ironically, at a Whispers Shalimar Lakeside concert thing. And this reporter comes up to us and he goes, I heard you guys were fired from the time. What's the bottom line? And he sticks the mic in our face and we're like going, what are you talking about? He ended up being Lee Bailey who had Radioscope, the show Radioscope, on the radio back in the day. So when we went in to get our check, we would get our check every week. We'd go to the accountant to get our check, and he goes, oh, we can't give you your check this week. And we said, why not? He said, because you guys got fired. And we said, we got fired like four weeks ago. He said, we said, where'd you hear that? He said, it was just on the radio. Lee Bailey, Radioscope. And we were like, no, okay. So it was all just a bluff for us to go out and fall flat on our faces, and, and it didn't necessarily work. But as Terry likes to say, he didn't fire us, he freed us. And that's what, Jay, that's the way it happened. Terry, you want to comment a little bit on that? No, oh, no, Jam uh, expanded on that very well. Um, but yeah, I, I think the destiny is, 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 is um, already set for you in life. And, you know, a lot of times we hold ourselves by allowing other people to hold us back. Mm. And, you know, I love Prince with all my heart, respect, um, all that he he's done for us and many others, mm-hmm. uh, giving us the opportunities that he did. But um, we had talents that we wanted to just expand. Mm-hmm. We just did. We wanted to work and produce and learn and and be students. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had to get away from him in order to do that. So when he freed us, you know, because it's all perspective. <laughs> he, mm-hmm. he just allowed us to grow. And sometimes, you know, we were just having this conversation earlier about sometimes in the room, you know, you can you can have six toes. Somebody has to bow out. Mm-hmm. Somebody has to allow someone else to grow in order for the room to get better. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he removed himself from, from our life and in a, a, in a, in a sense, mm-hmm. allowing us to grow, to become better. And he actually really respected us for that. So, Terry, so in that vein, when you look back at all that you guys have done, which is once again just outrageous, um, are there is there a moment where you say where you remember like you felt like we did it, we made it, like we're here? Did, does, did you have that moment? Well, I, I think there's been many moments with that feeling. I mean, I, I, first of all, I love the journey, so I never want to arrive anywhere. Right, right, so I'm enjoying right. all of it. The process is the process and I love the process. That's okay? right. But, you know, how you measure success is very important to me. And for me, it's always thinking of success as what I want to achieve. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily allowing everybody else's vision of what your success or failure is to become part of how you think because then you'll never do anything. Mm. So we just go out and we just do the best music that we can do. And once again, we hope for the result that we want. So the first time that that result happened was on control. So we always, we lived in a a neighborhood in in, um, Los Angeles that you would always hear music blasting out of people's houses and cars. And we would always walk to Golden Bird at the time, which was, you know, a restaurant where you could go get you some chicken and a biscuit, whatever. Because, mm-hmm. you know, we were broke, man. We They had like a $2.99 special or something like that. That would be our meal for the day. <laughs> so our objective was always to make sure that the music we create was coming out of all those houses and all those cars. Yes, we had written a song for the SOS band was not produced by us. It was produced by Leon Silvers called High Hopes. And we would hear that on the radio. They call that a turntable hit, whatever. Then we we did, you know, Just Be Good to Me. And that kind of was there. Tell Me If You Still Care became the classic. That's that's the one that everybody got into. And we started hearing that. Mm-hmm. But man, when we made control out of those houses on that particular block, <laughs> out of the cars, the Jeeps, whatever it was, <laughs> Control was groundbreaking and it was it was just another level of feeling. So I got that feeling from hearing High Hopes the first time as well, because that was a landmark for us. Like we got a song on the radio. Mm. Right. Mm. Got that feeling from Just Be Good to Me being on the radio. Well, tell me if you still care became just a ghetto jam. (laughs) No problem. But Control took it to a whole new level. And that's when it's like, okay, so now. We have a lot of options Mm because life, the quality of life is dictated by options. That's right. Control gave us 
options. It wasn't just black people coming for production. It was white people, black people, green people, just music. And so it just expanded the opportunity to do music. And so that was just a great force to reckon with at that point. Well, Jimmy, I got to tell you, I can remember the first time walking into a Barnes and Noble and seeing my book on the shelf. It's hard to really explain and express to people who've not had their work that they've created and worked really hard on for public consumption and then for it to actually get to that point. It doesn't matter what the sales are, but the point is that this baby that you're vulnerable about and you're emotionally connected to, and then it actually is there and you walk in and you see your book next to all these other authors, big and small. I have to imagine you guys have to have similar feelings when you hear your music uh, that you worked on. People don't know the work that goes into it. You see what I'm saying? They don't know all the late nights, the arguments, the changes, whatever it is. They don't hear or see that. They just hear the, hear the music. But it's got to feel good when that stuff comes on the radio, someone's playing it in the car or in the house. That just I, I get chills thinking about how I felt the first time that happened to me. Yeah, we definitely always felt that way and, and continue to feel that way. And, I, and it's funny because I think, you know, one of those mated moments for, for me was, and it's, it's probably a little more personal for me, but I, I never graduated high school. So when I quit high school at one point, my mom, who was very much always into education, I thought was going to hit the roof. <laughs> like she was going to be like, are you nuts? But interestingly enough, she said to me, as long as I see you going for your dream, which was to do music. Mm. And so I don't know, probably I would say eight years later, seven, maybe seven years after that, we got nominated for a Grammy for producer of the year. And mm. I brought my mom as my date. My mom was my date. And when they read our names, I remember what, it was Michael McDonald from the Doobie Brothers, which was pretty cool. He read Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. And I got to hug my mom. But when I always felt like when I walked across that stage, that was like graduation. Mm. So that moment for me was really, but it also, but what it did was it never made it feel like, oh, we've made it as much as it felt like we now have something to live up to because mm. we're always going to be known as Grammy winning producers. That's mm. always going to be our moniker. So now let's <laughs> prove that we really deserve that. And let's really mm. try to make even better songs or, or whatever. And it's interesting that somebody told me the other day that we're um, the most nominated producers uh, in the history of the Grammys. Like, I think we've been nominated like 11 times or something like that. So consistency, it reminds me of something a long time ago when we did our first interview with the local uh, newspaper, Minneapolis. And the columnist uh, uh, asked us, He after Control came out, he says, wow, you guys are the hottest producers. How does it feel to be the hottest producers? And we said, well, we don't really want to be the hottest producers. We just want to be warm for a long time. <laughs> and he kind, of, he kind of laughed when we said that. But then 35, well, 30 years later, when we did the Janet <laughs> Unbreakable album, he interviewed us again. And the album entered number one on the charts. We had a song, No Sleep, that stayed number one for like 10 weeks or something. And he said, how does it feel all this time? You guys have had number one records across four decades. How does that feel? And we said, remember what we told you the first time you interviewed us? And he said, what's that? We said, warm for a long time. And he just laughed. He just said, it's really funny. And he he just did a, a an, another column about us because of our new album, the Jam and Lewis album. And he said, I already know how I'm going to start this one off. Warm for a long time. And I said, yeah, exactly. And I, I say that to say that that was always our goal was to try to be consistent and try to have what we call the equity of credibility. And it takes time to build that up. But we always want people to think, you know, obviously they're going to listen to what we do, hopefully, but it's always got to, hopefully people, when you say Jam and Lewis, it means they're an expectation of, of quality, you know, mm. that, oh, yeah, I can tell this is going to be good, or I, I think this is going to be good, or my expectation is it's going to be good. I call that the equity of credibility. And to me, that's our most valuable asset that we've been able to achieve over the years. You guys, I'm going to be respectful of your time. This has been amazing. We're going to have to do it again, because I haven't even gotten into half of the stuff I wanted to get into. But uh, I do something called uh, the random seven. And since I, I usually just have one guest, but I have two, so I'm going to alternate. They're just 
seven very random questions. For those listening and who know my typical random seven, these may be a little different, so don't get bugged out. But I feel that the moment calls for me to change up the seven a little bit. So Tara, I'm going to start with you. Um, and these are quick answers. They don't have to be long, whatever you know you want. But uh, And they'll put you on the spot a little bit, but that's okay. So Terry, the greatest singer alive today is who? That's a tough one. I know. That's a tough one. Mm. Well, my heart of hearts just dug in. I say Charlie Wilson. Wow. Uncle Charlie, huh? Yes, sir. He, I can't call him uncle. <laughs> I'm too old to call him uncle. <laughs> okay, I'll take that. Jimmy, if you were not doing what you're doing now and you have done for all these years, what would Jimmy Jam be doing? Ooh. Well, I guess there's two thoughts. I, I would still be involved with music. I probably wouldn't be producing, obviously, because I'm because uh, that's what I do now. But I was a DJ before, so I would probably still be doing DJing or something to do with music in some way. I just don't know what exactly that is, but it would be involved in music some way. And if it wasn't involved with music, I remember when I was younger, the one thing that I thought I would enjoy being is a pilot. I took uh, flying lessons and the whole deal as I was younger. And my dad actually had a private pilot's license. So I really liked aviation when I was younger. So maybe I would be doing that. Terry, what is one of the greatest hip hop albums or artists of all time? Well, there's so many, but the one, once again, that just jumped in my spirit and we were having a conversation earlier today, um, this, the Fugees. I just like Man, when I saw Lauren Hill for the first time in Sister Act, she like knocked my socks off. Man. It was like it was like that convergence of all things powerful. Mm. It was R&B, hip hop, just great music, the great musicianship. It was everything that I just loved about music. And they just kind of put it into a new hipper package. Mm. And it was just the coolest thing. So I love that. Mm. Um, Jimmy. What makes Jimmy Jam really upset? <laughs> Boy, this question is like a setup. <laughs> yes. Be- because Terry could answer this one for me. But I, but the one thing, because we talk about it all the time, is I, I have a, I guess, a pet peeve, if you will, about people burning popcorn, microwave popcorn. <laughs> because to me, it says a lot about their uh, character. Like, first of all, you're doing something so simple. And it says right on the instructions, watch and make sure that everything's okay. But if it says between, I don't know, two and five minutes, according to your microwave, don't set your microwave on five minutes, set it on two minutes, and then make sure it's still good. You can always, you know, fire it back up again. But when people burn the popcorn at the studio, and that smell happens, and you can't get rid of that smell, (laughs) that's like the, that's like my pet peeve. I can't stand that. That's one of the best answers I've ever had that question, by the way. I love that answer. Um, okay, we got three left. Uh, Terry, how would you define good music? Simple. Music that makes me feel good. <laughs> it's, mm. it's, it, you know, it can, you know, once again, definition, there's only three kinds of songs, good songs, bad songs, hits. Music that makes me feel good usually become hits. And as simple as that. Now, at some point in time, there's there some song that I might deem bad, like because it doesn't have musically what I desire, but I still try to find something I like in it. Mm. So there's something that I like in just about anything I listen to, you know, but I just say how music makes me feel. It's, it's, it's a feel thing yeah. more than a, a sonic thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy, if you are wanting to get pumped up to feel good, who never lets you down musically? Where do you go? What song do you go to? What artist do you go to? Well, um, let's see. If I have to narrow it down to one, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to cheat. Okay. I'm going to say if it's a Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis song, I go to Optimistic by The Sounds of Blackness. Mm. Um, it's our favorite mm-hmm. song that we've ever written. And it goes to what Terry just was speaking about is the way a song makes you feel. That song makes me feel good no matter what kind of mood I'm in. If I'm in a happier mood, I'm happier. If I'm in a sad mm. mood, it gets me going. Mm. And that was the effect that it seemed to have on people. Uh, we have a saying, which is music is the divine art. And the reason we feel that way is specifically because of a song like Optimistic and the power mm. of music to really make those moments in your life better, you know, the soundtrack of your life. So I think Optimistic would be 
my simple answer. I think as an overall answer, I would say, you know, my favorite album of all time is Marvin Gaye, What's Going On. Mm. And so I could put that on once again at any point in time. And it does it does two things. It gives me great memories of you know, hearing it for the first time. But every time I hear it, it's like hearing it for the first time. It's because it's a different experience because it's so complex, but so beautiful. And his words, I said this a little bit earlier, maybe a better way to say it is, uh, I think earlier we were talking about how when you put words into music, it comes across in a different way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that Marvin Gaye did the perfect job with what's going on. Because if you think about the subject matter, it's a very tough subject matter that he's singing about, Mm. but he almost made the music like a lullaby. There's Mm -hmm. bells and strings and major seventh chords and all of the things that's almost in a soothing way as he's talking about these things that are very uncomfortable. It's a, it's a brilliant album. It's a genius album. And and he was a genius artist. So I remember when he got shot, I'll never forget that as one of the scariest moments of my life because we had, were in my, um, at my uncle's house in New Jersey. And we had just gone out and a, my whole family was there and we were going into the house and it came on the radio and the adults started screaming and I was a kid. So I wasn't accustomed to hearing my mother and aunts and uncles. They were screaming and crying. I know what had happened. And they kept saying, you know, this can't be, this can't be, you know, and then the story came out and I was so to this day, I love him by the way, and listen to his music for so long, but, but I'm always touched in a way when I think about, how scared I was on the revealing of his death that day as a young mm-hmm. child. It was, it was really tough and still is to this day. Before I ask the last question to you, Terry, I want to ask you guys real quickly, that's not part of the Random 7. Have you guys ever done the Kennedy Center Honors? So this is what I think. You ready for this? this that's one of my favorite shows, by the way. I mean, oh, literally. Me too. Well, it's beautiful, yeah. Well, oh, it's yeah, just beautiful. a it's a beautiful production. No matter where the honoree is from or what they've done, I get choked up at their greatness. And I can just imagine, sorry, this is just me. I can just imagine you guys up in the box being one of the honorees and some of these singers who you have provided the content for their hits to sing and, and sing odes to you. That would just, cause you know how they do it, how they have people come on and yes. I can just imagine seeing some of these guys come out and sing to you guys. If anyone's listening who has a connection to Kennedy Center Honors, these guys deserve a Kennedy Center <laughs> Honor for sure. Uh, God's listening. That's right. That's right. We're going to make it happen. I'm going to make it happen. Yeah, your lips to God's your ears. Your lips to God's ears, right? All right, Terry, last question to you. A hundred years from now, people are reading about Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. What do you want it to say? They were good guys. They were good guys. They were good. Their, their, their humanity was in the right place. Uh, they were always trying to be on the right side of truth. So, you know, I always say, you know, three sides to every story. And we want to get to that that third side that, you know, is not mine. No one owns that side. It is just the truth where we want to we want to express our truths in the right way so that they lead people to the light. That's what I would hope, you know, for a legacy. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, I, no, I was just going to say. So that reminds me of one last. Sorry, our stories are long winded, but, you know, okay. so um, <laughs> the um, so I, I have a story I always tell about one of the people that we worked with who was the most impactful person in the studio we probably ever worked with, which was Michael Jackson. Mm. And Michael Jackson absolutely blew us away in the studio. And by the way, think about this. We worked with Prince and we worked with Michael Jackson. Like, how mm. crazy is that? I mean, oh I don't goodness. know anybody else that, that has that distinction. But anyway, I said you're outrageous. Uh, we, That's why I thought you guys are you guys are outrageous. But go ahead. <laughs> well, so so what was I'm interesting? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, we luck up on a few here and there. But what yes. was interesting was I was having a conversation with Michael one day and he said, kind of to your question, how do you want to be remembered? And I said, I want to be remembered as a nice guy. And he said, no, 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 no. Is it because of all your hit records, like all your number one records. And I said, no, I just want to be remembered as a nice guy. And he said, no, 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 no. Is it because of, you know, how many millions of albums you've sold or how many, whatever. And I I said, no, Michael, I said, those are statistics. Mm. I said, I guess statistics are okay. But I said, no, I'd, I'd just like to be remembered as a nice guy. So he was kind of in a quandary about it. So we moved on and started talking about some, something else. So fast forward about a year later. And we had sampled, I think, Billie Jean or one of his songs. And everybody said, 
he'll never clear that. He never clears samples. He never whatever. And I said, well, we'll try it. And I saw it. I gave him a call and I didn't reach him. But his girl said, oh, I'll make sure he gets the message. So Sue, who was a girl that worked in our office, she comes knocking at my office door. And normally she just gets on the intercom and just goes, hey, there's a line to call or whatever. She walks in the office and she goes, Michael Jackson's on the phone. And I said, oh, cool. Okay. She goes, no, Michael Jackson's on the phone. I said, okay, Sue, I I got you. I got you. She said, no, not someone calling for Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson's on the phone. I said, I got it, Sue. I got it. Thank you. Thank you. So I pick up the phone. I go, hey, Michael, how are you? He said, I'm good, Jimmy. How are you? I said, I'm good. He said, I know you want to ask me a question, but before you ask the question, can I just tell you something? And I said, yes. He said, so people always ask, what was it like working with you guys? And I just say, he was the nicest guy. And I said, (laughs) right. And he says, I get it. I get it. Now I get it. I said, good, Michael. I'm, I'm glad you get it. And I said, I, and I, can I tell you something? He said, what's that? I said, when people ask me what it was like to work with you, I say the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. And he goes, you do? Oh, that's great. What was it that you needed? I said, well, we sampled Billy. Oh, no, that's no problem. Call John Branca, my lawyer, and we'll get it. Anyway, we got it done. And everybody was like, how the heck did you get that done? And I just <laughs> said, we're nice guys. That to me is the, that's the story. That's, that's how we want to be remembered. The statistics and the number ones and all that, that's all nice. The statistics is nothing wrong with it. But if we have given somebody it, it, a good experience, whether mu- some, the music we've done, whether it's, a, you know, it's a, you know, a, a room like this where we're having a conversation, if you walk away and it's not even about what was said so much, but the feeling that you get is a good feeling, then that's the thing. There's a lot of artists we work with that, you know, uh, sometimes the records aren't hits, right? And and the mm-hmm. artists will call and go, let's work together again. And we'll go, but it didn't work last time. And it was like, no, but that's not you guys' fault. But let's work together again because they enjoy the experience of it. And mm-hmm. I think in life, that's the thing. You just want to enjoy the experience of doing something. As Terry says, mm-hmm. the, the journey, you know, that's mm-hmm. the fun part about it. And we hope we never arrive. Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, I want to personally thank you for the music of my life. You have helped me in so many ways. You have been a friend to me when I needed a friend. You have lifted me up. You have pumped me up before basketball games and football games when one to get get yoked. You've done that for me. You have been into my bedroom. You guys have just been amazing. And I personally want to say thank you so much for the millions and millions of people who won't be able to say that to you personally. You guys, as, as the saying goes, life well lived, journey well traveled. I appreciate you guys. Thank you for joining the conversation. Thank, thank you. you it ain't over. conversations with dr ian smith is hosted by dr ian smith associate producer ariel mancibo executive producers ian smith and ken johnson find the conversations with dr ian smith podcast on apple Podcasts, stitcher spotify iHeartRadio, amazon music odyssey or wherever you get your podcasts or on ig at dr ian smith conversations with dr ian smith is a mean old line media production you've worked hard for what you have your money your assets your 401k and home isn't it all worth protecting nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft lifelock ultimate plus helps protect your finances with up to three million dollars in reimbursement LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.